Hi, my name is Steve Taylor. Welcome to the ShareEd podcast, created by Robinhood Multi-Academy Trust. Hello, everybody, and thanks for joining us. In today's podcast, we're going to be talking to the super talented Ben Parnell of Greenshaw Trust. Now, for those of you who don't know Ben, he's the Director of Secondary Education within the Trust, and he holds the ultimate responsibility for the rapid turnaround of all their schools and performance. This conversation I found to be really fascinating, not only in terms of how Greenshaw operate, how they go about helping the wider education sphere, but also listening to Ben's personal philosophies. I think he is an inspirational guy, and I hope that you're going to take a lot from this conversation. Okay, Ben, so welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for coming along. When when we started thinking about who we're going to go for in terms of a leadership context on, on the podcast and who's, whose input we, we could get, we came across you and what we've been really impressed when we've, um, when we've met with you and, and also looked at um, your profile online is your vast experience in turning around rapidly improving schools, but also far more than that, is that you seem to represent giving to the greater good and a movement in education I think that you know I feel really proud about is when people go out and they offer something far wider than themselves or their organization and you and your role and Greenshaw have had a massive profile quite rightly so during lockdown so I want to say welcome. Thank you that's really good to be here as well Steve. Well I mean you uh, let's just start off by talking around uh, lockdown and what you guys have done during lockdown. We started off with lockdown one, and I think you you were very altruistic straight away from the get go. Can you tell us a little bit about the decision making process during that time? Yeah. Um, so, firstly, um, I think like everybody, we were we were a little bit shocked and and went into that um, that kind of freeze mode where we just didn't know what was going to happen and what we were going to do and. Um, you know, one of the things I'm really blessed with is that I'm surrounded by some seriously talented people, which makes up for huge inadequacies that you're going to probably find out over the course of the next 40 minutes or so. But um, but but in situations where we simply don't know what to do, um, our modus operandi is let's get in a room and um, and uh, let, let's just kind of put some ideas down on the table and, and, and work out what might be possible. So um, it wasn't possible for us to physically get in a room, but um, we strayed into um, our first Google Meets, um, which we hadn't used before um, to meet and, uh, and thought, right, OK, um, there's likely to be a period of time coming up whereby um, we're going to have uh, a number of staff off. And at that point, we didn't know what the potential implications were for people's health and long-term absence, et cetera. Um, we might have to deal with some very serious family circumstances, which unfortunately have manifested themselves amongst staff and students and families and wider community. Um, we anticipated that the unions might have a part to play in this at some point along the line, which you know, actually in lockdown one didn't appear to be the case, but um, certainly lockdown two and three, quite rightly, the unions have, um, have had a, a, a significant support for their staff and we've had to deal with the ramifications of that. Um, and then I guess that um, I guess that the other thing is that the, um, the, 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 the mindset of us all the time is uh, we, we put our staff and our students equal first in our organisation. Right. And we wanted to make sure that however we approach this, we did the right thing by our staff because that was important for us. 
but also that we did so, we did the right thing by our communities. Um, and so um, we kind of pulled ourselves together into a room. And I remember it was a Saturday morning and uh, it was the Saturday, actually, the week before we broke up for lockdown. And okay. I had a colleague, Joe Ambrose, who's my school improvement lead. Um, Izzy Ambrose, who was the head teacher at the time of Yate Academy, who's now part of my um, a wider um, senior school improvement um, team. Um, we had Rhiannon, one of our maths leads, um, and Catherine Brown and Patrick, two of our head teachers. Uh, and I'm sure that there are probably other people there too. But yeah. we sat down and we said, right, okay, well, what on earth are we going to do? And uh, somebody in that room, and I think it came from Joe Ambrose, said, look, you know, we get, we've got an opportunity here to be able to really consolidate um, work that happens across all of our trust around, um, around our shared curriculum. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we were able to create the most amazing online curriculum for our kids um, that meant that we had the very, very best lesson opportunities for children in their homes. And so we kind of collectively agreed that was a really good idea and tasks ourselves. We're going away to find out how we could this make this possible for the children that are in the communities that we serve. We got 20, 20 schools within our trust, 12, 12 secondaries, eight primaries, and we thought, right, OK, this is something that we would be able to do to really make a difference. And I guess by the time that we started closing down um, uh, the, the, the schools to most children on that Tuesday and Wednesday and then around the 22nd, I think it was in March, um, we, we decided to pull things back together and said, look, you know, if we're able to do this for our schools, what about all of those schools out there that don't have the massive network so that we've got, we, you know, we've got a really big school improvement team that doesn't, doesn't work day to day in schools. Yeah. What about those single academy trusts or very small multi-academy trusts or local authority schools that are in unitary authorities where they, they, they don't have large teams of people? Could we do something for them? And I guess that's where we started thinking about the potential to be able to do something that was right and proper for our own children and communities. But with very little additional effort, what we might be able to do is to be able to help out some people outside of our trust as well. And that's kind of how we started thinking about um, a little bit more system-wide um, uh, contribution that we might be able to make during the lockdown period. Yeah, you know what, just listening to you that, the, the, there's a couple of things that have really resonated with me. First thing, what comes out is just how aspirational you were at the start about making a wider difference. I mean, I think a lot of leaders, not criticising them, but I've come across quite a few whose mindset during the lockdown has been, let's just get through. Let's get through. Let's survive. Let's look forward to when we return to what was normal. I think what you've just described and articulated there is a group of people who didn't see it as let's get through. It was let's make what we're doing exceptional and spread that. So I think that that really stands out for me. I love what you said at the start as well about your your vulnerability about yourself as in, you know, we might find imperfections in you. Part of this podcast is, you know, being at one with yourself as a leader and as a person and that part of that is having imperfections and that, that being good and proper and you know no one's no one's um perfect are they in leadership and i think that that element of acknowledging that in a in a public setting is really powerful for for leaders to do and you've just done it because ultimately um the higher up the chain you go the more you the more you understand is that everyone's really making up as they go along aren't they 
<laughs> Do you know, it's funny you should say that because I don't think that at any point in my career have I ever thought that the person above me is busking as much as I'm busking. And yet I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm assuming that they are. They're just better at bluffing. Yeah, and, that's, and it's, it's so interesting because, you know, the higher up you go and, and when you see um, organisations and people become really successful, it's often because they've had the ambition to think um, to a broader set of principles, isn't it? They've got good drivers, but they've, they've got a, a bigger ambition to, um, to just ex- do more than accept the status quo. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And I, I think probably when we go back to the, the piece that I just said about the, the, the people that, I, that I've managed to surround myself with, yeah. um, I think that you know, all of them have got technical capabilities, which it, on their own are much more secure than any of the, the individual capabilities that I have. Um, I think the, 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 the one thing that every one of them has in common beyond the fact that they're brilliant at driving improvements in teaching or fantastic at interventions or brilliant on governance, the one thing that they all have got is a desire to, to, to just be the best that they can be. And um, I think that's a quality which I really look for in, in, in not only the people that I employ, but, um, but the people I want to work to as well. And, you know, my, my, my boss, um, uh, he hates being called the boss, um, but my, my, my boss, Will Smith, he's the CEO of the Greenshaw Learning Trust. Um, you know, the, what, what I learned from him about the, uh, about the need to make sure that you've got drive and energy and common purpose in the organisation really kind of fine-tunes what I look for in, in, in people um, wanting to work, work with us. And I kind of sum that up as being wanting to be the best that you can be every day um, and if you if you do that and you want to be the best that you can be then you are going to be full of drive you are going to be inquisitive you are going to want to learn from others you are going to have to listen to other people because there's a pretty good chance that you're not an expert at everything and so being the best that you can be and having people around you that are constantly doing that I think creates a momentum in an organization that means that when you're faced with difficulties and a lot of unknown and uncertainties as we face back you know you faced yeah. school leaders across the country faced back in in March that there's this just this desire to to do something that might be really quite special. Yeah, absolutely, and, and to problem solve it in a way, in in a way that helps um, remove that element of fear as well, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And do, do you know that that's one one of the things that I've had to learn a lot about in my most recent job? So you talked a little bit about the 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 a couple of the um, roles that I've had before. Um, I think probably particularly with my time at United Learning, which I thoroughly enjoyed. I was with United Learning for six years and an executive principal for them for five. Um, and in that time, I did a lot of telling um, and, um, and not a massive amount of listening. Um, I took a responsibility for working with some of their new and most challenging schools. Um, and, um, and my model of school improvement was very much on, on the basis of success that I'd personally experienced before. A set of systems and structures that at the time I definitely had the energy to follow through. Um, but I think probably my biggest learn that I've had since leaving United Learning is that Actually, you can you, you can get a pretty successful school by driving something through that that's been well thought out and on a personal level, just creating the conditions every day to making something happen. But to be the most successful organisation, it relies on more than just you. And the more that I've opened up and welcomed the ideas, thoughts, opinions, systems, structures, feedback, challenge 
from the people that have surrounded me in my work, the better the 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 organisations that I've I've kind of overseen have become, and that that's not just better in terms of kind of rapid improvement, better Ofsted gradings, or better outcomes, but actually, the communities that that live within those schools have become better because people have got a much more thorough understanding of what they're doing and why they're doing it, um, as opposed to just following a list of jobs that Ben Parnell's told them to do. And uh, that, that, that's been really interesting. And I think probably on reflection, just going back to my early times as a head initially and a, then as an executive head, um, I think I would have really struggled in, in periods of time where there was huge uncertainty because so much relied on me deciding what was going to happen and and carrying the can on things and creating the momentum and drive within an organization yeah. and i think that the the people that i've got that i've got that i work with now and also i think probably my the different way that i've allowed people to grow and develop has meant that we're we, we can just be i mean agile's a horribly overused word at the moment but we can be a bit more agile um we can flex a little bit we can cope with things that a little bit unusual from outside coming in and you know you've talked about the the kind of survival thing and very early we adopted that we're going to strive not survive in yeah. this period of time thinking okay well you know there are some basic things that we just have to do you know we have to put risk assessments in place we've got to organize an in-school staffing structure they're, they're, they're just practical things that we've got to solve but what opportunity is there in here in order to give something back to the the, the system and i think that's probably where we um where we kind of took off in march well i love what you're saying there and that i've always thought with um with schools when when they're going for Ofsteads, if you have a school that is in a tricky situation and they're hoping to get good and they're looking back over their shoulder and they've got this glass ceiling on themselves, they will only it's at their they're at their most vulnerable because ultimately what they're doing is they're, they're in survival mode. Yeah. And if people just have the the bravery and, and the foresight to get above that the school would flourish a lot more and it would stop looking over its shoulder. And I think that goes in line with that mentality about, about what you've been saying in terms of the most dangerous thing we can do is go into survival mode. Yeah. Because you're either going to survive or you're not going to survive. But what you're not going to do is you're not going to thrive, are you? You know, to thrive and to succeed, you've almost got to look past even considering surviving. I mean, why Why would, this is hard enough at the moment, lockdown in a leadership capacity, just humanity for the country. If you're just focused on surviving, on getting through something that has a um, indeterminable um, endpoint, why would you just try and survive it? Because satisfaction comes from trying to thrive and do something much bigger, doesn't it? Do you know, that made, that made me chuckle when you're talking about that kind of survival mode. Because yeah. I'm, I'm currently living just outside the, um, the, the the Forest of Dean. And in, yeah. in all my wisdom, I decided that I would go along with a group of year sevens on a residential um, about four years ago um, to a place in the middle of the forest and go caving with them. And uh, when you were talking about surviving there and the difference between surviving and thriving, <laughs> I was in survival mode down that cave. And when you talked about the pleasure of the experience, 
there is no, I, I don't think I've experienced su- su- such a horrible feeling as putting myself into a survival mode where I, all I can think about is how on earth am I going to get myself out of this um, hole that I'm far too fat to be in and, 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 and still be able to be a father and a family figure when I come out the other side. It's a horrible experience. So the, that idea of, um, it, of looking at a challenge has been as just about getting by or just coming out the other side and, you know, still having your job or, 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 or you know, not having lost a school because it's been rebrokered. I think that must be such a horrible feeling, a real stranglehold on you. And again, it's just reflecting on what you said about the um, about about really kind of holding schools back, looking over their shoulder. Um, that again made me chuckle a little bit because one of the things that I, I have to line manage head teachers as part of my job. I, I say that like it's a chore. It's actually one of the best parts of my job. Mm-hmm. But um, when, um, when the moment a head teacher, when I when I might pick up on something around the school and say, you know, well, I wasn't so sure about the quality of teaching in that physics lesson. I just like a conversation, and that response, which sometimes uh, gets elicited from that sort of questioning around, yeah, and it, it wasn't great, Ben. But you should have seen what it used to be like, as if that's some sort of reason why not being excellent is is good enough at that point. I think it was really interesting as well. It's it's an absolute no go area for me that. Um, when somebody makes the excuse about something not being brilliant because actually it's better than it was. And uh, just linking that with that kind of survival thing was really interesting, I think. Yeah, and I think that picking up on what you've said there, that's often the danger of people who have got a narrative (laughs) of they see something from a really poor state, they improve it, and they tell themselves it's much better than it was, but they still, in some cases don't have a high enough ambition for what great looks like. So if they're comparing it outwardly to other organizations, it still might be pretty low standard, but they're comparing it from the back starting point. So they, they, they attribute too much narrative on the journey to it, in my view. Can I just ask you about personal self-doubt with you? Um, self-doubt? Yeah, because I, um, I mean, throughout my career, I've uh, struggled with a bit of self-doubt, to be truthful. Uh, I think that's part of why I've got to where I've got to is because I incessantly hammer myself and <laughs> that drives that drives improvement. And I'm fiercely competitive as well, which isn't always a, a positive thing. Some of the stuff you were talking about um, previously made me think of, have you seen Steve Jobs' inauguration speech to Stanford? Yeah, I have, yeah. I watch that quite a lot because when we're in a position of um, having our backs to the wall or we're worried about things going all a little bit pitong, I think about um, Steve Jobs and I think that when he says about you can't know going forwards if the stars are going to align, you can only look back and know where all of those experiences led to and appreciate that they all happened in a sequence that have built you to where you are now. I take a lot of solace from that because what that says to me is um, if Steve Jobs can take his worst moment of getting fired by Apple and come back and become so successful, even if we go through something really awful, it might actually be what is needed to take us personally to the next step. So what's your views on, do you suffer from a lot of self-doubt? How do you handle it? That sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I, I suffer from much less self-doubt now than I used to. And, um, you know, I, I attribute that to... Um, I, I guess the fact that I've just been in the job quite a long time. Um, yeah. One of the things about school leadership is there's a lot of very new people to it. And 
um, you know, I took up my first headship in 2010, which is 11 years ago that I, I think I've come across most things, albeit not COVID-19, but most things in the system. That means that I've got myself out of or I've managed to get get us out of um, whatever hole I'm in. So, yes, yes, I do. I have I have much less than I used to. Um, I think probably um, a quite a good example of um, of that comes from I, I worked. Um, so my first headship was at an all boys school in, in Bournemouth called Winton Arts and Media College. And I took it on and it was in special measures and. Um, I knew it was in special measures, obviously, when I took it on. And so I moved my family from Somerset across to Bournemouth, got my mortgage up to a ridiculous amount because houses were cheap in Somerset and they're definitely not in Bournemouth. Um, And moved my my daughter and my wife. And, and, you know, we... We, we, we had a, we had a very big transition in our family at that point, um, and uh, and about two or three months after I started there, um, we had uh, we, we we affectionately called them the Dark Riders with a reference to the Lord of the Rings. But at the time, it was the office of the office of the schools commissioner, which uh, now is the regional schools commissioner and the national schools commissioner team, who essentially served an academy order on our school, um, uh, uh, Winton, and. Um, and we were. I was told that um, there would be a, a, a process called a benchmarking process, which definitely wasn't. I was told um, a, a process by which I'd have to reapply for my job. But essentially, it was a two-hour interview up at Sanctuary House, and uh, and I had to uh, reapply for my job. So, um, so oh, yeah, it was <laughs> at that point. I think I probably had, that's probably the point at which I had the most self-doubt because whilst I was confident that some of the things that I'd put in place at the school were, were starting to have an impact there. Um, I certainly hadn't seen any of the results or outcomes. Um, we were still firmly in special measures. Um, I'd made more mistakes than I had good decisions. And actually on reflection now, I didn't realise quite how many I'd made at that time that, that if I was somebody from outside, I'd, I'd be questioning whether I was capable and a, a, a right and proper person to be doing that job. Um, and uh, and it was a frightening experience for me where up until that point, I felt that, um, that there was a safety net around my work that meant I, I knew what I was doing and people around me respected me and, and they, 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 they could see the value in my work. And that was the first time that I really felt that um, I, I, I kind of had two hours to demonstrate that I was good enough. Otherwise, I was probably going to lose my job and um, and I was going to have to deal with all of those other things like a mortgage that I couldn't afford to pay for and and and, and all of those other bits. And I, I think I probably experienced panic for the first time in my professional career. I, I, I've experienced it a few times since, actually, but um, but <clears throat> up until that point, um, I hadn't experienced that real that really constrictive feeling of not knowing where to go or how to do things. And being somebody that wasn't very good at admitting mistakes and um, and talking through ideas and being pretty autocratic in my leadership style um, meant that when things went badly, um, I was kind of on my own and um, not completely on my own. I had a I had a very good uh, deputy at the time, Ben Antel, um, but actually I, I didn't ha- I hadn't surrounded myself with very very high quality people um, that had got a lot of experience that could coach and support me through those difficult times and um and i i kind of resolved that if i came out the other side of of uh, of the um of, of that of that experience that i was never going to be in a situation where i felt so lonely and and on my own um 
and ensured that recruitment of people close to me that I trusted, that I understood that, that were principled, that I knew I could talk openly with. I didn't have to feel like I was constantly the kind of, although I, I, I'm often the most senior person that's in the room, I didn't feel like I had to act in that way all of the time. I think it set me up quite well for when we've come across situations like that again. So your question about self-doubt, I I have self-doubt. I have doubts about what we do regularly, um, but I I haven't experienced the same level of panic as I did in that situation um, because because I I think I've got more confidence in, in being able to, A, back myself that I've probably got through this problem before, and B, that... I've got a wealth of experience around me, both above in terms of, you know, who I've chosen to go and work with um, yeah. and also the team around me to know that, you know, it's, it's one and all in. If I go down, then we're all down. <laughs> and uh, and I, th- I, th- I think that just helps. Yeah, I think so. I mean, do you, so do you hammer yourself though? I mean, when I'm talking about self-doubt with me, I agree now, you know, I'm not talking about self-doubt panic. Um, I am I am talking about a constant questioning. Is it good enough? Are we doing this good enough? Am I good enough in this area? So a constant questioning, which sometimes is hard to turn off. But with you, do you do you hammer yourself or are you are you okay with that? Yeah. Um so I guess it's a bit like spread betting. <laughs> I mean, okay. I oversee quite a lot of schools. So, you know, that I I think I'm pragmatic enough to know that that we're not going to win every time, and um, you know there are going to be some tricky situations where where things are not going to feel right in some of our schools, and you know there will be times where the results don't quite stack up, and that's going to require us to do something about it. Um, but I'm, I'm I'm normally pretty confident that we're going to come out the other side of of that situation. So, I'm, in terms of self doubt, I guess that. It's it's rare, particularly around school improvement, that I would feel that I don't know how we're going to resolve an issue. Um, so I don't doubt myself on that front. I guess that the the concerns that I feel in my role often come with things that I haven't experienced before. And the 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 more I get involved and the more exposure that that my line manager will gives me to some of the things that go beyond kind of school improvement and running schools to to governance and you know relationships with the regional schools commissioner teams and finance and and and, and all of that side of stuff when things go wrong in those areas I, uh, I guess I've got more self-doubt because I've got less experience and yeah. and of, of being able to resolve it so I think there are still those elements but fortunately they're not on things that I, I I lead on at the moment so I can always fall back on other people to help me out okay great yeah I mean that that that, that really helps I think you explained that that really well it kind of leads on to we've talked a lot about rapid school improvement mm. and you've gone into a lot of schools you know firstly you started in a special measures school as a head teacher that was your first headship, yeah? Yeah. That in itself is a statement, I think, the fact that you've gone into a special measure school for your first headship, because I know a lot of leaders wouldn't touch one with a badge pole, especially on their first headship. Some people spend a career not going anywhere near it as well because it was, it's too much scrutiny. So the fact that you've gone in on your first headship to a special measure school, and then you've got a track record of turning around special measure schools. Can you just talk us around, as particularly with Greenshaw Trust now, You've obviously got a model of turnaround schools. Yeah. Can you just give us a broad outline of how you go about approaching that, what strategies you use, just a summary? 
Yeah, sure. So we, we use a lighthouse with various various stages, which uh, if we're visual, I'll be able to show you. So I'll try and describe it to you. So you've got your bulb at the top. Um, and the starting point for us um, is just making sure that governance is really secure. That's going to give us the latitude and flexibility to be able to do what we need within the organisation. It's very, very difficult to, um, to improve um, schools quickly um, if the governing body isn't ready for what's going to come. And you, you want to improve schools quickly. Our experience is that there is likely to be some resistance. Um, there'll be resistance from the community. There'll be resistance from parents. There'll be resistance from students. There'll be resistance from staff. There'll be resistance from unions. Uh, you, you, you will be pushing up against a lot of resistance. And yeah. when, you've got a, when you've got a governing body who quite rightly are there to ensure that all of these voices are listened to, um, if that governing body is not ready for that sort of level of resistance and recognise that it's a normal part of school improvement, I think it, it it really constrains what you're able to do. So getting the governance right to start off with and ensuring that your chair of governors is communicating well with a wider governing body and that there's experience and recognition in that governance to know what's coming and to be supportive of that, I think it's really, really important. I think probably the next tier down um, for us is about making sure that, that leadership is really secure and um you know, whilst whilst we, we we have had some turbulence in some of our schools within the leadership teams and the head teachers, um, and uh, but we've also managed to grow and and and, and develop um, existing head teachers and leadership teams. So we, we we haven't got a model where we go in and remove the head and the senior leadership team and put a whole new team in place. We 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 have definitely worked with with teams and and and, and put different head teachers in place, but that isn't a a standard uh, model. The principle is that we need to have a head teacher and we need to have at least two members of the senior leadership team, one on uh, raising standards and curriculum and one on teaching and learning, who are the most talented people in, in or in and amongst the most talented people in that organisation. Um, because without without the, that, that triangle of leadership being really secure, um, we know that it's possible to improve schools, but it's just very, very difficult. Um, so, so tier two to us is... Um, is around just making sure that we've got a very strong leadership team. And you know, we run some pretty big schools. Um, we've got leadership teams which are upwards of 10 people. Um, and what we don't do is go in and try and solve the whole issue around leadership immediately. Um, but what we do need to do is to make sure that we've got um, we've got security in the head teacher, the raising standards leader, and the teaching and learning lead. And sometimes that means that there needs to be some movement around the job roles and responsibilities within that team to make sure that the people that hold those positions are going to be able to make the sort of impact that we're going to expect pretty quickly. So, um, so that's kind of phase two for us. And some of that happens through, you know, we, we've, we've taken on schools which have been in special measures without any head teacher and leadership teams. Some, are, uh, some schools that we've taken over have been rebrokered into, into our trust. Um, and some of our schools have come to us via, um, via um, local authorities um, where the school's gone into special measures and academy orders have been served. And we also have some schools which are re really secure and actually are joining the trust because they want to get some of the, the wider benefits of working with us. So we've got a real range there, but it doesn't matter which school we're working with. We know that those three positions in the school are really critical and we need to make sure that they're secure very quickly. Um, the next um, the next area that we really focus in on then is um, is, is, is focusing on behaviour because we believe that until student and adult behaviour in the school um, is is appropriate, um, 
it's very difficult for anything else to stick. So if you get stuck into teaching and learning as a kind of, we all know that great teaching produces great outcomes equals great experiences for children. But it's our belief is it's virtually impossible to improve teaching unless behavior is really secure. So we have a mantra every hour, every minute, every second of every lesson is disruption free. And we guarantee to the communities and everybody that we work with um, to our staff that we are going to help support you become better at teaching. Um, and that's our best teachers to our, 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 our least capable teachers. We're going to do that by making sure that behavior is really secure in the school. And we're going to, as senior leaders within our organization, we're going to take a direct responsibility for that. So we've got some, I think, very good policies and structures in place, but um, we move the, a, a lion's share of the responsibility for the day-to-day management of behavior in the school through to one or two key people supported by the trust um, to get to the point where the, there is zero disruption in our schools. Um, that just uh, j- just just to let you know, we see significant improvements within the first three weeks. And by week six, we challenge any member of our community to come in without notice into any of our schools to go into any classroom that they want to go into and to find a single child um, off task and a single adult in the organisation not behaving themselves in an appropriately professional way. Um, so it's a big challenge for us. We have six weeks to turn that part around and um, and we've successfully done that in all of the schools that we've worked. Um, Can I just ask you about that then? So in those first three weeks, do you um, do you have, a, you know, you have a higher rate of exclusions or you take it the first three weeks, you get a real kickback if if the behaviour has fallen down in a big way. Yeah, definitely, and 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 so so yes, we do. Uh, and uh, I know that's not always the most popular thing um, to to share. And you know, we're not proud of the fact that the exclusions rise for that period of time. But 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 actually, you know, that 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 is what fixed term exclusions for us is for. It's it's about making sure that we draw a line as to where our expectations are, and then when students move beyond that line, that um, that there are consequences attached to that. Um, you know, our long-term goal is to get to a point where there are zero fixed-term exclusions and zero permanent exclusions um, in a school. And what I can share with you is that our three schools that are our highest-performing schools, um, two out of the three were in special measures when we took them on. One um, was RI, double RI, um, uh, when when we took it on. Um, they, they, those three schools have had zero exclusions this academic year um, and no permanent exclusions this academic year. So, I mean, uh, we, we, our, our pledge was that um, that those schools would have none, and um, by, by the end of by the end of the year, and we were well on well on course to achieving that. Um, certainly, in that first term where we had all of the students back in, we had zero fixed term exclusions. So, the long the long term solution is that we are, you know, we're a fully inclusive um, multi academy trust. We recognise that people have complex behaviours, but um, you know, when a school's in absolute chaos, we've got to um, We've 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 got to be the adults in in that organisation and ensure that um, that we get the schools um, back in the first instance back under control, and then um, in the in that in that kind of second phase, ensuring that every child's got the opportunity to learn and that teachers don't need to rely on their personalities to be able to teach their classes. So that's the kind of next tier down in there. And we can come back to a bit more around that if you like. So I know that that behavior stuff interests people. Um, after that, we, um, we, 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 and, and very quickly. So we're talking week three onwards. Um, we start really kind of driving the improvements in teaching and learning. And what we've learned, particularly from, you know, looking at some of the other large maps, United Learning, Harris, um, 
arc um the stuff that they're doing on incremental improvements in teaching we've we've learned masses from um and um and there's a guy that does quite a lot on twitter called chris moyes who's a, he's a decent guy and you know he's really kind of challenged our thinking around um around around what the purpose of observation and feedback is uh, as opposed to kind of performance management and so we have a teaching and learning model that means that our um our staff have um have a, I'm going to use the term observation, but it, I'm talking about a very short, sharp um, uh, drop in, um, which uh, where uh, there, there's something that will improve that the quality of teaching in in that room, um, and that may be apparent after a minute or two minutes or five minutes or ten minutes of being in there against a set of six principles that we've defined as being the important things that that we expect sit as the backbone of our teaching and learning um uh the teaching and learning in each of our schools and every fortnight every member of our um of our staff um has a very short observation with feedback against those um against those principles and that goes from the head teacher right down to the NQT in their first week of teaching and we've eliminated these kind of high stakes low low frequency um observations against teaching standards in favor of giving very, very small incremental things that people can do to improve, that they understand that no, 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 nobody's forgotten um, about. And again, it's just quite a funny story I'll share with you. But yeah, I, I've sat down a lot with um, with heads of teaching and learning. And you, invariably, when we've picked up the schools, they've been in special measures. And um, the head of teaching and learning will sit down. And in this case, it was it was Paul over at Five Acres. He, he sat down with me and he said... Uh, here we go, Ben. And he slammed a massive, great, big lever arch file down on the table. And I just said to him, well, what's this? And he said, well, this is all of the observation and evidence that we've built up over the past 12 months. And I looked, I thought, my word, this guy's thorough. He is thorough, by the way. Um, my word, this guy's thorough. I said, um, I said, can you just pull out? And I listed five different teachers. Um, and I said, can you, can you pull out their, um, their observation feedback forms and, uh, and just let me know what each of them are working on? And so... He went through and everything was catalogued and he pulled out their forms and they all had these kind of targets that were all set for them, et cetera. And said, right, okay, let's go see those five teachers. We went into those classrooms with those targets. I asked each of those teachers what their target was. Out of five, none of them could tell me what their targets were. None of them were working on those targets in the classrooms. And it was great. We went back to my office and Paul, the assistant head at the time, he looks at me and he said, Ben, he said, that's just a big folder of nothing, isn't it? <laughs> I said, yeah, it is. And this is indicative of so much about what happens post um, post going into special measures that schools end up in this situation of just trying to cover themselves with paperwork on things that are going to improve when actually sometimes a teacher just needs to be told, just get up from behind your desk and stand in, the, in front of your class when you're, when you're doing your teacher instruction part of the lesson. And yeah. that will make more difference than all of the performance management observations they've had up until this point. So our teaching and learning strategies, the fundamental part of it is we've got six clearly defined principles and then we, we kind of just very, very light touch, low stakes observe around those every two weeks in each of our schools, provide feedback and grow confidence and improvement in, in the quality of teaching. And then around that, we've got um, career appropriate um, uh, online training sessions that we run. And then I guess the final thing that we look at is just making sure that standards improve and um so people often talk about raising standards and intervention. Um, what, 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 I, what I think about and what my team thinks about is how do we prepare children really effectively for exams? And so that's about the quality of the revision materials that children get, 
We timetable in all of our schools, um, self-study periods where students are taught how to revise really effectively, use Cornell note-taking, um, how they use flip and fetch retrieval cards, how they organise themselves and their, and their planning. They have that as a weekly lesson on their timetable right from year seven all the way through so that our children really understand how to revise effectively for an exam. That's virtually unheard of that that happens in secondary, but all of our schools do that. And it means that when the child gets to the point where they've got to revise for a terminal exam, you know, they've been revising for five years. They know how to revise really effectively. They've got great notes that are in a good, really good order. We've had countless numbers of parental um, um, uh, sessions so the parents know how they can support their child at home with revision. We've done pretty much every example of every type of question that a child might come across. We've made sure that we've completed question level analysis, which details exactly what children can and can't do, do or don't know. Um, we've supported children in all of the pastoral care support that's needed in order to make sure that on race day, you run your best race that you're ever going to race. And it means that the examination results go up. And the, the, the offshoot of that is that the three schools that we took on, two of the, those three that I talked about, the two in special measures and the uh, one in that's, that was RI when we took it on, the one in RI is now in the top 1% in the country and the two that were in special measures are in the top 4% in the country. Our SEN results, we, our children, you're better off with a significant special educational need in, in one of our schools than you are being an average student with no SEN in another school. You're going to get better examination results. And our pupil premium children nearly get a full grade above non-pupil premium children in other schools on national average. So the, the, the thing that when, when we go back to the behaviour and inclusivity, as is about making sure that not are we just keeping children in school, but more than that, these children are going to get better outcomes than if they went to any other school in the country, regardless of their socioeconomic background, their SEN need, their, 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 their EAL need, or any, anything else which might be perceived as a reason for them not to succeed. Well, I could listen to you talk all day about this. I think this is quality. I really, um, there's a couple of points there that, that I really want to pick up on. I love that idea around the revision from year seven onwards i mean i've got a daughter who is 13 now she's in year nine yeah. goes to a really good school outstanding school actually um but i think what you've just described there i can see how much that would support children not just in revising for exams but in how to order themselves moving through life and in adulthood so i can totally see how systemizing that and making it a regular weekly occurrence uh, in terms of a lesson would be so so powerful and I think also and, and I've got to say dead happy with my daughter's school but um, you know if yours would run the corner I'd, it sounds like I'd quite like to send her there and then the other thing is when you're talking around these staff and uh, and messages and things in, in special measures schools because we've gone in and supported um, a number as well I think it always comes back to simplicity yeah. where you see um, schools that have had double RIs or they've gone in special measures and people have tried to get them out and failed or, or not had the impact, it's often due to a really elaborate, overly complicated message, isn't it? Which is what you've said. You know, it all comes down to strip it all back, just get it back to a few things and be really consistent with what you're delivering on, isn't it? Definitely. So, I mean, the, 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 there's a point that I didn't share with, with, with you there around those revision sessions. Um, it's also really cheap. We have 250 children in a hall with one teacher, which you can do if you've got great behaviour, where students are sitting there revising for an hour a week. That's a fifth. That's a £50,000 solution that you can have potentially, a, 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 you know, 
<laughs> I, I think you can save a lot of money by doing that. The other thing is that, um, you know, when you've got um, low quality cover lessons being set, if you have a centralized cover solution, um, you, can, you can build self-study into that because the children just know what to do. They have their, they have their revision materials, um, you know, they, they, they have their, their commercial ones, but also they have revision guides for each of their subjects that we've produced and um, knowledge organizers for each of the units. So they have all of those. They have all of their cards and they're all kept in the main hall. So they just go in, they pick up their their their, their, um, their their plastic folder with everything in there and they just sit down and they get on with their work. And, you know, people have talked about independent study and, you know, I think it's always been really difficult to get underneath the skin of what, what that means. For me, independent study is somebody understanding how to sit down with a set of resources and work by themselves for an hour on something that's going to be meaningful for them. So we've worked really hard around that. And I think the, the you know, the knock on effect is obviously that students get better, better at their preparation for their exam. But it also just saves lots of money. It's a really, really cheap thing to do in your school. Um, but you yeah. do need great behaviour and you need a desire from your head teacher to, to want to do it. And wow. just can I, can I just pick up on the simplicity thing? So you, you're right again. Um, you know, the, it's, it's simplicity and also just reducing bureaucracy. So, um, you know, the, I, I'm, a, I'm a believer if something's not right, just say it. You know, don't worry about, about saying it. Don't have to go through all of these stages of you know is that the line manager that should be picking it up etc you know if something's not right just say it and just say look we need to just get this sorted out and that can be something tiny like the fact that when you pull up at the at the front of the school there's a little bit of graffiti on the front of the school that you just need to make sure that before you've left has been sprayed through to the fact that you walk into a classroom and the physics teacher is teaching the wrong um, uh, speed and, and, and acceleration equation or it might be that you go into another room and you know there's no energy in the room because the teacher's sitting checking their emails when they should be out the front teaching their class and it's about really just checking on those things and not worrying about dealing with them but but the simple thing is if something's not right tell somebody tell, tell them it's not right and just give them something that they can do to improve yeah yeah absolutely wow it's been really fascinating hearing you hear you talk about the, the approach, your approach, and, and Greenshaw's approach. Can we move on to you as a person now? We touched on some of it at the start. You know, in this podcast, we always want to know a little bit more about the person that that, that sits behind um, being interviewed. And a couple of questions we ask is, um, back to the wall moment. Uh, I don't know if you're going to go back to the... Uh, I mean, you've, I think you've pretty much described it. Um is there anything that you want to add to that back to the war moment? Or have you got a different one that's that's even more challenging than that? I've got one just in case somebody's listening and they've also miscalculated the cost of um, sending some kids to the local tertiary college. But I got I got a naught wrong. So the 14000 I had in my budget to pay for this for these kids to be out of the sixth form college was actually 140000 And at the time, trying to find 126000 quid just felt like the end of the world. And can I just say, if you're ever in a situation like that, I always go on the basis that if you if, if your budget's somewhere between three and five million quid, you can probably find three three hundred thousand pound in a year. So it's going to be really difficult, but you can do it. My, yeah. my advice is don't worry too much about it over that evening because I found that that hundred twenty six thousand fairly quickly. So that that'd be some advice on that. How did you respond when you realised that you're one hundred twenty six thousand pounds out then? What can you do? You know, you know, in, in situations where mo most times you can probably just go and find find something from somewhere. But in in that situation, 
yeah, I haven't got £126,000 in my own pocket to go and go and fill the hole. So I had to find find solutions. And, you know, again, it was kind of working things through with people around me that were just a bit more experienced and had a bit more idea about, about what 126,000 quid really means. You know, it's not 126,000 pounds, a lot of money, but in, when you, when your budget's 5 million, it really isn't very much at all. You're going to be able to find it, you know, strip back that SLA that you, that, that, that you had that you don't really use, take 10% off each of the top, take 10% slice straight off your department capitation, freeze any recruitment that you haven't that you haven't included in there go through your licenses your it licenses and look at the ones that you're paying for that you haven't you haven't used for a while i mean you you can find you can find that sort of money really quickly but at the time it was really scary because i just thought i'm never going to be able to find this money um but we did well okay that's that, that that's interesting to hear um and what about who's had a the biggest influence on your career to date i mean yeah. When I ask this question, there's always you could go to loads of people, and I know singling one person out is tough. But um, yeah, yeah well, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna dodge it by saying I'm gonna just very very briefly highlight three people. Say okay. the first is I've spoken about Will Smith, my current boss. Um, I think probably the things that he's really worked on with me are um, you know that I had a lot of success very early on, and um, and 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 maintaining and understanding the ego does not play a healthy part in an organisation. I think he's extremely helpful. And he's had to do some work on that with me. Um, and I think that's been very helpful. And the thing I've learned most from him is, you know, the bigger the bigger the person that you make yourself, the bigger the story is when you fall down. And um, he's very good at keeping me centred. Um, and it's, for somebody as talented as him, he's egoless. Um, it's very, very interesting. He also um, allows for creative excitement. Um, and I think there's something um, that... I think more experienced leaders can do around allowing people space to be able to drive projects, even when they're really stupid ideas, um, is a really good thing because he creates energy in our organisation. I think probably prior to that, um, so I had a line manager, Sally Coates at United Learning, and uh, my biggest takeaway from her is that she really owned decisions. I hadn't really worked in an environment where there were where you know you had to make lots of very high pressure decisions. And when we when I made decisions, she was very clear she was with me on them and never, ever, even when things didn't go the right way, backed away from what she supported me with at the time. And I hopefully have taken that forward to make sure that anybody that works with me knows, you know, if we if I say I think that's the right thing to do, I'm never going to go back through and say, well, actually, I didn't really say it like that. I stand by those decisions and I really learned that from Sally. And I think probably the final person that's had the biggest influence on me is Andy Buck, who, again, I've, you know, when you have a look at who's line managed me, Will Smith, Sally Cates, Andy Buck, it's like trio, dream team. Um, but uh, and Andy's ability to be able to listen and allow you to explore solutions yourself um, has really stopped me from jumping in quite so quickly with my own ideas about how to do things and realise that the people around me are just much brighter, harder working, intelligent, creative. And my job is to open up those, those solutions as opposed to being the solution. So Will Smith, Sally Case, Andy Buck. Wow. Well, what, what a trio of people. <laughs> so where next for, um, for Greenshaw, do you think, in terms of what you're hoping for? Yeah, so we, we I mean, we've got a growth plan, which... Um, which is an interesting one. So we, we, we're pressed all the time to by our trustees and by the RSC team to just kind of put down on paper and commit to how 
how we're going to grow. But when your organization is based on providing um, providing a, a potential solution or being part of a solution to a problem, you don't know what problems are going to pop up. So, you know, hand on heart, we didn't know 18 months ago that we were going to be um, operating in Plymouth and we've now got three schools in Plymouth. And, you know, we, we, we not that the, 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 that was a problem, but actually an opportunity was offered to us with three really good schools there that wanted to come and join join us. So um, so it's, it's difficult to get to, and I think unhealthy to overly like kind of plan um, what, where you're going to go, or what you're going to do. I think, um, I think just coming back to the things that are important to us around, um, around doing the right thing, uh, around, uh, around being good to people, around being open, um, like open to helping and supporting others. And also from learning from what are some hugely talented people in our sector will really drive our decision-making going forwards. And, you know, I just hope, you, we, we've talked a little bit about a couple of personal experiences where it's been, you know, really quite hairy. Hopefully we don't have too many hairy experiences over the course of the next couple of years and, and potentially just grow a little bit more. That's the, that's the intention. Just be good to people and, and hopefully enjoy a bit of success. Yeah, that's, uh, that's <clears throat> be good to people, enjoy success. I think that's a, um, that's a great way to, to end the podcast. I think that what you guys have done is everything I personally believe in education in terms of your altruistic sharing and that philosophy of how you're taking things forward and doing it for the greater good. I think, um, I think you're doing a brilliant job. And, um, and if only all education is like that. And I think that is the challenge for post COVID if there is such thing as post COVID, but normal COVID, whatever it is that we move into, I think the challenge is can education unite and, start operating systematically in the way that you've been operating with Greenshaw, because I think then we can all look ourselves in the mirror and know it's not about looking after your own backyard. It's about looking after all of our backyards. And that's the most important thing because ultimately it's kids at stake, isn't it? Thanks, Steve. It's been a lot of fun. Yes. Thanks a lot, Ben. Well, we hope that you enjoyed listening to today's podcast and that Ben has given you food for thought in terms of moving your thinking forwards and how leadership is approached at a wider scale. It certainly has moved my thinking forwards and if nothing else, I look to Ben and Greenshaw Trust as the shining light for how education can work together and collaborate. As always, this has been a Robin Hood Multi-Academy Trust production. We believe at the heart of education lies collaboration. Until next time, catch you later.